there and welcome to the Let's Talk podcast. I'm Carrie Lloyd-Shaw, Christian blogger, wife and mum, muser and grace lover. I write and chat about a broad range of biblical subjects deeply rooted in and flowing from this focused centre that one man died for everyone. I believe that it's this truth about Jesus that makes our hope as Christians visible to others as part of a collective worldwide community of faith, the Church of Jesus Christ. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram and if you're a word nerd like me, you can check out my latest blog articles by heading on over to the website, carrieloydshaw.com. Right now though, let's talk. I'm always thinking, always analysing, always taking long, meandering, pick-a-path trips in my head. It seems, at times, like my mind's a constant jumble of thoughts. In fact, I often think my brain must look like a ball of wool, all tangled up in knots and wrapped around itself in a million different ways. I read recently that a critical part of any cognitive behavioural therapy is learning to acknowledge and analyse our internal thoughts. Well, I consistently nail that part at least. Thoughts acknowledged and duly analysed on a daily basis. So anyway, here's where my head's been at lately. I think our view or perspective of God and his intentions may have been shaped by many things, but the Bible sets the narrative straight pretty much right away, declaring his intent and purpose from the beginning. We read in Genesis 1 verse 6 that God said, Let us make human beings in our image, to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. Further, God declares in Numbers 14 verse 21 that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. God's desire has always been for us to be like him and for him to dwell with us utterly and completely. He intended us to not only be like him, but for us to also rule over his good creation on his behalf exhibiting his justice, goodness, and truth throughout all the earth. Affirming God's sovereignty, reflected in the way we choose to live like him, gives shape and purpose to the role for which humanity was created, and, later in scripture, why and how the church also finds her purpose. How amazing! The king of all the earth desired to make us in his image and in his likeness, so that we might reflect his glory the weight and splendour of all that he is, and so that everywhere one might look, east, west, north or south, all that can be seen and felt is God. God dwelt with us once long ago in a garden. His glory and splendour could be seen then as humanity and God walked together in perfect harmony, and everything was very good. Only one thing remained in order to make this eternal the application of our free will to partner with God and to undertake this rule on his terms, a display of obedience and commitment to him. This isn't what the first humans chose though, and the third chapter of Genesis starkly illustrates the terrible outcome, banishment from his presence and separation from his glory. The book of Genesis is a means to a theological end, its purpose to illustrate in historical mythological language God's relationship to creation and his intention of dwelling with us. As Professor C. John Collins puts it, 
The whole purpose of Genesis 1 is to set the ideal human community, a place in which the image of God, or the imitation of God, is actually going to be realised. That, of course, gets distorted in Genesis 3, when humans disobey God. But the first chapter is outlining the ideal. Biologus has this to say. Genesis 1-11, through then, is the founding story of humanity ending in crisis. These narratives give a real and true assessment of God's initial purposes and the human plight. Genesis 12-50 through is the founding story of the nation with whom the covenant is eventually made at Sinai. The covenant establishes the relationship to Abraham and his descendants, provides the structure for living in God's presence, and lays the foundation for God's presence to be established on earth. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, were the chosen people through whom God intended for all the world to learn of him and be invited into a restored relationship with him. After their epic deliverance from slavery in Egypt and a desperate flight through the Red Sea, the book of Exodus tells the story of Israel's journey under the leadership of Moses to Mount Sinai. There, they find its summit is wrapped in thick smoke and access to its base must be limited, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Through rolling thunder and lightning, God makes solemn promises to them in that place. He intends to make of them a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, contingent on their faithfulness to his covenant. He gives them ten commandments so that they might understand his holiness and his laws, by which their lives and worship of him were to be governed. They will be witnesses to the nations around them of the glory and sovereignty of the God who not only rules over them, but also dwells with them. It was also in Mount Sinai that the tabernacle, the residence or dwelling place of God, was to be constructed. Designed to be able to be transported, it was to be a reminder that God was with them always dwelling in their midst and travelling with them throughout all their journeys. Housed within the holiest of holies inside the tabernacle would be the Ark of the Covenant, a pure gold-covered wooden chest with an elaborate lid, ornamented with two golden cherubim, called the Mercy Seat. Inside the Ark would be placed the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Swathed in an impermanent transitory wrapping of tapestry curtains, covered in images of cherubim, the glory of God descended and tabernacled amongst them. A large cloud of light and mist settled overhead, signalling God's presence was there in their midst. They would know it was time to set out when the cloud lifted, but until then they waited and rested in the presence of the Lord. God had moved into the neighbourhood. The tabernacle was an itinerant dwelling place, as the people of Israel would be on the move, as it turns out, for 40 years. When they finally reached the end of their wilderness wanderings and settled in the promised land, it would be many more years before a permanent structure was built to welcome God's glory. Under the reign of King Solomon the Wise, son of the great King David, A glorious temple was constructed some 480 years after the Great Exodus. Built with exquisite craftsmanship using masterfully quarried stone blocks 
and cedar and cypress timbers from the great forests of Lebanon, it was a magnificent building dedicated to the God of Israel and intended as the place in which he would dwell with his people in a more permanent way. Solomon's words at the dedication of the temple are beautifully moving to read. He says, I have built this temple to honour the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, and I have prepared a place there for the ark, which contains the covenant that the Lord made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire community of Israel. He lifted his hands toward heaven and he prayed, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in all of heaven above or on the earth below. You keep your covenant and show unfailing love to all who walk before you in wholehearted devotion. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. You made that promise with your own mouth and with your own hands you have fulfilled it today. And now, O Lord, God of Israel, carry out the additional promise you made to your servant David, my father. For you said to him, If your descendants guard their behaviour and faithfully follow me as you have done, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. Now, O God of Israel, fulfil this promise to your servant David, my father. But will God really dwell on earth? Why, even the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. 1 Kings 8 verses 20 through 27 from the New Living Translation Solomon asks an important question. Will God really dwell on the earth with us? The answer is yes. But as humanity would come to understand, The living God desires to dwell not in temples made of wood and stone, but in a living temple, in a structure softer and more pliable than stone, more ancient and beautiful than Solomon's temple or the wilderness tabernacle before that. He longs to dwell with us, in us, utterly and completely. The people of Israel, however, struggled with their unique and privileged identity. They would worship and serve God for a season, and then, when things were going well, they would become complacent and selfish, turning aside to worship gods made of wood and stone, like the nations around them. They abandoned their covenant with God over and over again. They paid little heed to the warnings from prophets like Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, and Ezekiel about the impending doom that would come upon Jerusalem should they remain feckless and unfaithful. Finally, Ezekiel is given a sobering vision of the end, of the moment that God's glory will leave the presence of his covenant people. We read in Ezekiel 10 verses 4 through 5, 18 through 19, and 11 verses 22 through 23, these words. Now the cherubim was standing on the south side of the house, when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim were heard, as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, 
and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. The nation of Israel had forgotten that God is not tethered to a building, and his desire is not to dwell in a place, but in a people. The final pages of the Old Testament come to a close with the prophetic words of Malachi, written around 460 to 430 BC. We find the people of Israel have now returned from nearly 130 years of exile and are back in the land of their ancestors. Yet the nation is vastly diminished. The temple has been restored under the leadership of Nehemiah, but it is a much smaller building than the previous gloriously constructed temple of King Solomon's days. Despite Ezekiel's vision found in Ezekiel 43 verse 2 that the glory of the Lord would return, the glory of the Lord has not returned to this temple. Yet there is still hope to be found. Isaiah speaks these comforting words to Israel around the time of their return from exile in Babylon. He says in chapter 40 verses 1 through 5, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, deliberately echoes these words, over 700 years later, to announce the arrival of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John, the Apostle, not Baptist, opens with an otherworldly prologue, regarding Jesus and his origins, specifically the identification of Jesus as the Word, who was with God and was God in the beginning, through whom all things have been brought into being, who is the light and life of humanity, and who became flesh and dwelt among us. He concludes his origin account with a brief explanation as to his role. I am, he simply says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As author and theologian Eugene Peterson puts it, and where the title for this episode is taken from, God had moved into the neighbourhood. He says in his paraphrased translation, the message, in John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son. Generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The glory of the Lord had returned to dwell among his people, but this time it was wrapped in a perishable temporary covering of flesh and bone. 
This was the true temple of the living God, the house of God in which there are many rooms, and which, though it would be destroyed, would be rebuilt again in just three days, an eternal life-giving spirit for all who would enter therein. A temple with but a single door, larger on the inside than on the outside, where worshippers as numerous as the stars of heaven would find sacred space. A place where people and God could meet, at last, face to face and be reunited. A place where people could fully enter in, instead of only just drawing near. A place where the dividing wall would be broken down, and peace would be found instead of hostility. A place where there once had stood a wall, but now there would be a way, many brought near by the blood of Christ himself. A place where there once had been two, but now there would be one. Humanity reborn in this holiest of places, with God dwelling utterly and completely, in and with his people. All the narratives of the Old Testament had been simply shadows and markers, one-dimensional illustrations intended to point the world to the real story God has been writing all along, to the reality that God had intended from the beginning. God would dwell, as he has always intended, among people, in people, in a kingdom of priests, ransomed to him by the precious blood of the Lamb, slain before the foundation of the world. The glory of God dwelt among us, tabernacled with us, in the person of Jesus Christ, God with us, and it's in the truest of all temples, Jesus, that all things become possible. He was all things, the presence of God dwelling fully with us, the glory of God in our midst, the way, the gate, the faithful shepherd, the life, the resurrection and victorious conqueror of death itself, our priest, our peace, the bright and morning star, and the true temple of the living God, into whom we can fully enter through the power of the blood of the cross. Ephesians 2 verses 18 through 22 says this, For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's strange. The more I read the Bible, the more intricate it seems, and yet the simpler it becomes. Sure, it's full of strange visions and obscure prophecies, lamentations and poetry, passages offering wisdom for life, and chapters delving into deep theological insights about God and humanity. Reading the vivid and apocalyptic language of Revelation, for example, stirs our blood, while immersing ourselves in the trials and tribulations of faithful Job pulls at our hearts. The Bible is a completely magnificent book, the traverse of which is the journey of a lifetime. But there really is only one take-home point in all of it. God wants to dwell with us, all in all, utterly and completely, in glory. It's what we were created for, yet humanity is unable to match God's holiness, 
his perfection, his righteousness, and his supreme goodness. The nation of Israel, first specifically chosen to be God's people, showed the truth of this. Their faithless, inconsistent example and half-hearted desire for God are a reflection of all humanity. We could never enter into God's temple, into the very presence of his glory, without help. And Jesus was sent to be that help, to make a way, to break down the wall, to bring us back to God. Holy, innocent, unstained and exalted above the heavens, he is the guarantor of a superior covenant, both the presence, the pardon and the promise of God. Jesus makes everything possible. All of scripture, in a million different ways, is simply telling us the truth of this, that in Jesus, God is saving, rescuing, atoning, justifying, ruling, and reconciling people for the glory of his name and in pursuit of his purpose. And that is a story worth telling. The Pauline epistles are just brimming with thoughts on this subject, too numerous to add here. I'm conscious I've only just scratched the surface, and I hope I have managed to do it some small justice. If you're looking to soak a little longer in these thoughts, I'd recommend heading on over to the book of Hebrews, and starting there with a read-through of chapters 1 to 10. In the meantime, let me leave you with this quote from Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near.